Welcome to episode 302 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Brian, we're going to try and keep this one short this week. Yeah, they've been going a little bit long the past few weeks. We're going to try and tighten it up this time. Let's see what we can do, Marshall. Yeah, well, here, I'll I'll do something real quick. We have no sponsor this week, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't make any money, but (laughs) we get to save some time. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's get straight into follow-up. So last week, we called out Roots, which is a podcast about the stories of Filipino designers. And in calling out said podcast, I totally butchered (laughs) the name of the host. So... I have carefully listened to Alexis pronounce their name, and here is my attempt to correct it. Oh, here we go. Drum roll. Roots is a podcast about the stories of Filipino designers, produced by Alexis Collado. There you go. I think that's pretty good. Collado. Alexis, if I biffed it this time, I promise I listened to you say your own name like 20 times. I really, (laughs) really tried. I I, I can attest to that. Yeah, he he very much did his research and tried very hard. My mouth does not make the noises that it needs to make. (laughs) This is uh, my ignorance and not a testament to your name, which is beautiful. And the Roots podcast is beautiful. So for anyone interested in about the stories of Filipino designers, that's rootspodcast.design. You got a second shout out because you <laughs> fucked up your name. <laughs> well, well, that's a freebie. Yeah, it's a freebie. You get, you get a freebie. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, we got some more follow up. Marshall, you want to hit this first tweet? Yeah, so we got a tweet from listener Vincent. He was referring to a couple episodes ago in episode 300. We read a listener question about which episodes they should start with if they're just getting into listening to the podcast. And he said he's, uh, Vincent has always had a dream of building a website that recommends design details episodes. Haha, ha, actually. Yeah, that's a weird dream to have, but hey, good on you. Um, <laughs> cool dream. So let's do this. We'll tweet the process in an attempt to fill this post-grad void. So Vincent, do it. We both, I believe, liked that tweet, and we will look forward to... And Oh, yeah, and he started sharing his code and everything. So it's pretty cool. Open up the kimono, as it were. Yeah, so he, uh, Vincent has an API call working that gets our episode data back to his client. Looks like he's working on a framer prototype to sort and, and list those podcast episodes out. Vincent said the code is super simple, completely reusable, shouted out Framer X, and is sharing some of the code that's making this possible. And then Vincent, you had a couple questions. You said, um, all right, with 300 episodes, how do people quickly select their favorite episodes? Do users have a notion of a favorite episode? Good question. Uh, how do we show episodes which they've marked as favorites? If uh, someone comes back a week later, will our app remember their favorites? Where should the app display its recommendations? Lots of good product questions. It seems like you could generalize this. This is my my prototyping side project brain coming into work. Do it. You should generalize it, or you could generalize it and have like the concept of a podcast, right? Which is stored on a podcast's table. And then you have the concept of an episode, which is on an episode's table. And episodes have a podcast ID that points to the podcast table. And then you have user accounts that are on a user's table. And then you would have a user's episodes table and a user's podcasts table. And those represent the relationships between the two things, between users and podcasts and users and episodes. And so if a user favorites an episode, it creates a user's episode record with the user ID and the the episode ID. And then from the episode ID, you can infer the podcast ID. So then you could sort and group in that way. You could say, uh, I want to see all my favorite episodes from this podcast, or I want to see all my favorite podcast episodes across all podcasts. That would be 
perhaps interesting for people. Yeah, I, I was having a little trouble following along at first. But yeah, I think I, I would not have laid it out that way myself. But this is better. I probably would have included way too much information too far down in the tree. Like I would have probably included the podcast and the episode along with it, which would be unnecessary because it already points to it. So you're a smarter man than I, Brian. Well, it's just one way. And I mean, if you're just trying to build a design details specific app, then obviously you don't need any of that. But yeah. it's kind of a cool idea to abstract that out. Like why not just support every podcast and every episode and design details is just one URL, like whatever your website is slash design details is a page that lists our episodes, but slash some other podcast could be any other podcast. I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> a little bit of a, a rant there, but good on you, Vincent. I'm excited to keep following these tweets. Such a violent rant, Brian. <laughs> violent. Calm rant. down. But if anyone else is interested in following Vincent, he's tweeting code snippets as he goes and, and like live working through the problems of querying our API and organizing data. So it's pretty fun. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, super cool. Thanks, Vincent. I look forward to seeing how that turns out. All right. Last follow-up tweet. This is from Air Lindner. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Air Lindner. Lindner. Yeah. Who said, I've been saving things to do in my retirement in like 30 plus years. One of those things was design details. Yesterday, <laughs> I decided to give it a try with episode one and haven't been able to stop. Ooh. Early retirement present. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's quite a slog to go through. It might take you 30 years to catch up to current. So By the time you retire, you will have caught up. So <laughs> yeah, it kind of works out. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, thanks. Thanks, Air. Hope we're pronouncing your name right. But I'm guessing it's a German thing like H-E-R-R, Air, Air Lindner. Yeah, the Twitter location in the bio is Earth. So we cannot infer <laughs> a pronunciation from a locale. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a human language of some sort. Yeah. All right. We got a couple of listener questions, Brian. These are quick ones. Yeah, quick ones. Real, real quick. I'll, I'll ask you this one because I think you have an answer. So we got a DM from, we'll say Anonymous because they didn't say we could use their name. So Anonymous says, hey guys, love the podcast. I have a question for you. Any thoughts on doing UX design on an iPad Pro? And I'm experimenting with moving away from MacBook for work. Brian, do you, do you have any? I, I never use my iPad for anything that isn't like you know, kind of like art creation or media consumption. So yeah. Do you have answers? My iPad is a very expensive Netflix watching device. <laughs> so I personally am not exploring that. But Rafa, friend of the pod and co-host of the Layout podcast. Hi, Rafa. Also on the Spec Network. Hey, Rafa. Uh, Rafa tweeted on June 5th, shortly after Dub Dub, that a video of him running Figma on an iPad with iPad OS beta that now supports mouse slash trackpad input. And it works. It appears as though it works, which sort of makes sense because iPad OS makes Safari act like a normal web browser, not a mobile web browser. Therefore, there's no reason why Figma shouldn't just run in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and with a keyboard and, and mouse input, you can be much more precise. So don't know what the edge cases are, but it looks like Rafa's already started poking at some of those edges. So I guess you could follow Rafa on Twitter, at Rafa Hari. I will have a link in the show notes, but Rafa might have some insight for you. Good answer. Great. Easy. All right. Second listener question. This one comes from Kevin Hogg. Hi, Kevin. Kevin asks, my question is in regard to how you deal with the eight-point grid. You know, it's funny is I, I had a roommate whose wife's last name was spelled the same way, and she pronounced it Haig. Hey. So it might be oh. Haig. H-A-A-G. Okay. We'll see. Kevin Hogg? Kevin Haig? No, no, no. You're, you're definitely right. Kevin Haig asks, 
My question is in regards to how you deal with the eight point grid when designing for iPhone. It's all well and good for many Android devices with that 360 point width, but what do you do with that pesky 375 points on the iPhone 8 slash 10? Any insights you have would be much appreciated. Marshall, how do you handle that goddamn odd number width screen size? Yeah, great question. So it has an easy answer. You just work from the edges. In the same way you work from the left side, you work from the right side, and yeah, you don't have to think too much about the actual widths of things necessarily being in the grid as long as they align to kind of like your key line grid. So the general margins you have uh, around elements in the entire UI. Does this make sense, Brian? Yeah, generally you want to leave 16 points on the left, 16 points on the right, and things will just happen in the middle and you'll have some odd number width width things, some odd number wide things. Yeah, I would always count from the left and the right and the top. The bottom and the center don't really matter. It'll it'll work out. Yeah, and it's largely irrelevant because if you're designing for that screen size exclusively, then you're ignoring other screen sizes. And with how well adaptive layout is working or auto layout, a lot of the stuff you're designing should also transfer to iPads. So you want to be thinking just a little bit more abstractly about distance from edges and not exact pixel widths. Yep. Although I understand the frustration if you have one of those devices that's 375 points wide and you're trying to mirror things, so it's pixel perfect on your end. That is very frustrating, but yeah, generally you want to abstract it because you are shipping something that will work on many sized devices. Yeah, and I mentioned uh, the bottom doesn't matter, and that's only for like a scrolling view. If it's a fixed view that doesn't have any scrolling to it, then you would measure from the bottom as well. But yeah, or if actually from the safe area is what you should be measuring from on iOS because you'd have to account for the home indicator bar at the bottom and the status bar and all that stuff. Right. All right. But easy answer. Easy answer to a good question, one that I have uh, have wrestled with. And this is my answer is just measure from the edges. That's all that matters. All right, Marshall, we're solving the world's problems. Uh, One listener question at a time. But now we've got we've got a chunky one coming up. Let's get into industry talk. Yeah. Bada bump bump. Bada bump. This is going to be an interesting one, but I think I think we might have an answer to this. Okay, (laughs) we too can solve this problem. Yeah, no, no problem. All right, this one. I'm going to read you a tweet, Marshall, and then we're going to dive right in. Daniel Burka, friend of the pod. Yeah, Daniel Burka, very good friend of mine, lovely man, all uh, around mentor of mine when I first joined Google. Wonderful person. Positive human tweeted uh, probably the saltiest tweet I've seen Daniel tweet to date. True. Reads as follows. All you motherfucking designers who make it hard to delete my account, middle finger emoji. Don't hide the button. Don't obfuscate the button. Don't try to entice me to stay. Don't fucking guilt me. Brian, language. Language. Uh, That was tweeted (laughs) on the 17th of June, 2019, and has since (laughs) been retweeted hundreds of times and kicked off one of the longer-running design Twitter drama segments I've, I've seen. Uh, we're recording on the 22nd, so that's five days later, and it seems as though the conversation is ongoing. So, Marshall, what was your initial reaction to, to Burka's tweet? And then we can dive into some of the responses and then ideally come up with a framework that we can think about going forward with this specific problem of deleting accounts uh, and perhaps more generally dark patterns. Yeah. 
So, well, my first reaction was, it, it was surprising to me that Burka would take such a, a strong, almost aggressive stance on a thing. I wouldn't have expected something like this to come for, from him. But on the subject matter itself, I, he is somebody who I have known to fight for the user pretty steadfastly. So it doesn't surprise me that this would be a sentiment he would share. Yeah, it was, it was funny to see the, uh, the language he used to share it and also the crazy uh, long reply chain that it started. So it seems to be that the, the responses fall into a few different buckets. One is designers just follow orders. You can't blame them. Blame the person who gives the orders. Another is, yeah, designers are ultimately responsible for the the UX of their app. And if a pattern like this shows up, it's ultimately their responsibility to shoot it down before it ships or to take it down after it ships. And the third one would be, yeah, designers are responsible, but ultimately the responsibility falls on VPs or leadership who ultimately drive those decisions. Yeah. Is that is that a fair estimate of the kind of three? Is it left, right, and center, basically, is the yeah, three buckets? Yeah, I think so. And, and of course, there's... There is nuance in each of those buckets. Like, you know, someone called out, well, if a designer designs it and the engineer builds it, then is the engineer also culpable? And Berka and, and I would also agree say, yep. yes, like yep. the implementers of these things are, are in the people in this bucket would believe that they are responsible. I'll try and reserve my opinion until we get to that point. But yeah, those those loosely seem like the three buckets. And we got some examples that came out of this. And I've personally experienced some examples that, you know, people could noodle on as context for figuring out where they fall in these buckets. And so one for me personally was canceling a New York Times subscription or can I at one point had a Wall Street Journal subscription. And in order to cancel that subscription, which you're paying 10, 15 bucks a month for, you literally have to call a phone number and talk to a physical human being during working business hours. So you have to take time out of your day when you're supposed to be doing work to call somebody on the phone. And throughout the the phone call, they will try to get you to not leave. They will offer you discounts. They will pester you why. They, they do all this shit and you're, you just say, I want to cancel. I want to cancel. I want to cancel. Yeah. And finally, they cancel it. Yeah, Cable and phone companies are notorious for this thing. Gym memberships. Yeah. Yeah. You can also use this to game. If you don't actually want to cancel, you can game this dark pattern to your benefit by saying, I want to cancel. And they, they give you a free thing to keep you and you were never going to leave to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. When I tried to cancel the New York Times, they asked if I just wanted to have six months for free and keep my subscription. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. So I could have literally just called and not wanting to cancel, but gotten. Honey, I want to break up. Well, what if I bought you a car? Okay, let's stay together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not the most wholesome of relationships, but you can get free shit. Another example that came up through this was actually something pretty recent that surprised me. Someone shared a screenshot of Messenger from Facebook, and the screenshot was their help center, a help center article explaining why you cannot log out of Messenger on iOS. You can't log out of Messenger, Brian? So I didn't believe it. I said, yeah, me either. This is doctored. There's no yeah. fucking way you can't log out of, out of Messenger. So I, I open Messenger. I tap on my profile photo. I'm scrolling through my, my settings. And lo and behold, you cannot sign out of your Messenger account. You can switch accounts. You can add accounts. You can create accounts. But 
you cannot log out of Messenger. It is on your phone. I guess if you deleted your phone and reinstalled it, that the would app. be deleted the phone and the app. Sorry, on your phone? deleted the app and then reinstalled Just threw it. Your phone in a river. And then <laughs> that's how you sign up. Smash your phone with a hammer, and you're logged out of everything. Voila. Uh, so yeah, these are the kinds of things that it seems Daniel is frustrated by, and the responses fell into those buckets that you have outlined. Uh, I wanted to maybe call out a couple more cases that perhaps add a little bit of nuance here. So Marshall, you work on a product where you want to solve a user's problems as best as you can. Sometimes you will fail and people that use your product will not have had their problem solved. Therefore, they want to leave. And you as a designer, you want to know why. You want to know why you failed, right? Mm -hmm. And so for you and the company, there is value in trying to understand why somebody would want to delete their account, whether it's by asking them, questions through a deletion flow or sending them a survey. I could understand a perspective where you are trying to basically figure out where you failed and make that better for future people. Do you agree that that's a thing that could happen, which might result in frustration? Yes. Gathering information on why someone wants to leave is a a valid thing, I would say. Now there's the question of, do you ask them before you allow them to delete or do you ask them after? I would say after would be the more ethical way to go about it. It's like, okay, your, your account's deleted. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, why? Yeah. Right. As opposed to, okay, why are you leaving? Before I let you go, before I step away from in front of this door, I want to know right now why you're leaving, right? Yeah, and that seems like a conversion rate problem. Yeah, it's like, I mean, that forces them in order to delete their the app to, or delete their account to let you know why, but that also feels kind of dark. Yeah. Okay, so here's a second thing, which I uh, I will preface, I do not think this is an excuse, but is it is a reality, which is that for many companies and products, as they are building their product, they are constantly constrained for time and resources and people hours to build things. And it is always building things to solve problems, making the product faster, better, adding features. And the reality is for many startups, the exit flow for that, so letting people delete their accounts is just not a priority. I don't think that's an excuse, but it is a reality in which startups exist. Yeah, no, I don't think that's the thing he's getting at. I think he's getting at, like, it's hidden. It's intentionally obscured somehow. Yeah. Obfuscated, as they say. Obfuscated, yeah. Well, the last thing, so this relates to his Daniel's third point, which was don't try to entice me to stay. I want to throw this one in the mix. So... Dropbox had a very famous case study years ago. I don't know that this exists any longer, but during the downgrade flow of Dropbox, you would you know, click on a button to cancel your plan and you would be taken to a page where there was an illustration of a big aquarium with lots of fish in it and a little castle and cool plants. And underneath it said, this is your plan. And then to the right of it, there was a little tiny fish bowl with a cramped fish in it no cool castle, no cool plants. And it said the plan that you are going to downgrade to. So they use these illustrations to convey, you know, these are the features that you are giving up by by downgrading your plan. Mm -hmm. And the case study became famous because it did reduce the conversion rate of the cancellation flow. But this seems to fall into the bucket that Daniel is frustrated with, which is don't try to entice me to stay, but it it worked. I don't know if that's an enticement. I would say the Comcast thing of or, or the New York Times six months free thing, that's an mm. enticement. This would be more of a passive aggressive <laughs> informational, like educational thing of like, hey, just so you're aware, what you're trying to do are, is going to have these consequences. 
I think that's okay, especially if you do it in a playful way with illustrations. So I'm curious if the reason it worked, is it because it scared people or because it, it let people know exactly kind of what they're going to get themselves into and they decided against it? It's like, no, I do like this big aquarium. I don't want to give up some of these features that I like, right? Yeah. It, it is actually worth it for me to stay at this higher tier. I don't know what the answer is. Do you? I do not. I think if it's the latter, if it's an educational thing where people are like, oh, yeah, actually, that's not what I want, then it's a good thing. If it's a, if it's a you know, scare tactic of like everything's going to go away, <laughs> your happiness as well, right? Then that's bad. Yeah, I mean, Facebook was really famous for theirs. I don't know if this changed, but they continued to receive blowback for years. And if it still exists, that would be a bad thing, which is where when you were quitting, they would show you the profile photos of all of your closest relationships on Facebook. And it literally said, these people will miss you when you're gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's morbid. So I don't know if that still exists on Facebook, but that was a super clear example of guilting people or or tugging at emotional strings to make people stay yeah guilting is one thing informing is another yeah, yeah it, that's not as extreme as this dropbox example but they share this underlying thread of there are emotional psychological safety thing like threads in people's brains that for sure designers have the ability to tug mm -hmm. and there is an ethics and morality question of which of those strings you choose to tug and how hard you tug them and i mean part of the job of designing things is making it so that the psychology of consuming products is easy it's seamless you don't have to overthink so there is that part of designing going on anyways, but it, it gets into... It's the question of whether you're using your powers for good or evil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Marshall, all right, we've covered some use cases. We've covered, yeah, some of the buckets that the replies fall into. I'm curious where you land. Yeah, so we were talking before this, and I eventually kind of worked my way into trying to think of precedent. So like, what's a comparison we could make and is there precedent for how other people would handle this in different industries? And once I started thinking this way, my mind immediately went to two things. One political, one military. I, I thought of Nixon trying to fire the special counsel and his attorney generals, attorneys general, I love it. Attorneys yeah. general. Yeah. It's an interior pluralization. I love it. And his attorney general and his uh, assistant attorney general, whatever, AAG, I don't know. They both quit, I believe. I'm fucking up history. But like, basically, when given an order to do something they found to be unethical or unlawful, they chose to sacrifice their career and quit in protest over it rather than follow through on an order they found to be not worth doing. Right, right. So that's kind of the political precedent. And, and uh, those people were lauded for having done the right thing at the time when it mattered. So the other is military. So what happens if you're just a grunt, you know, just you're just a troop doing your job and you're given an order that is unlawful? Can you be held accountable for following through on a war crime? If you were ordered by a general, like a rogue general or something like that, can you be held accountable? And also, can you be held accountable for not following through on an order that was either lawful or unlawful? So I went to the internet, I went to the Googles and did a search and I found an article called What to Know About Obeying an Unlawful Military Order. And it's very informative. So there's a wiki for all those curious about disobeying orders. It exists for you. Yeah. And basically, I'll, I'll TLDR this for you. Basically, it comes down to you obey orders at your own risk and you disobey orders at your own risk. If you... <laughs> 
<laughs> cool, right. cool, yeah. cool. Easy, easy. Yeah, no problem. Basically, if you do something that the courts and people who are judges of this type of thing determine to be unlawful, you can be held accountable for it. And if you choose to not obey an order that they deem to be lawful, you can be held accountable for it. If you don't follow through on an order that you deem to be unlawful and that they eventually would have deemed to be unlawful, you in the short term have to suffer the, suffer the consequences of disobeying an order. But ultimately you can be, you know, kind of, what's the word? Redeemed by... Pardoned? Pardoned? Pardoned or... Exonerated? Yeah, there's a, a clemency, I think is the term. But yeah, ultimately, if you're, so, if you're asked to do something that you shouldn't be doing and you go ahead and do it, it's your fault. And if you don't do it, you can't get in trouble for not doing it. So how does this relate to what we're talking about here? <laughs> yeah, so, okay. So designers, the soldiers on the ground. Soldiers on the ground, yeah. If you are told to commit a dark pattern atrocity and you say no, you'll probably have to suffer the consequences in the short term of, of potentially losing your job or getting in trouble at the company for not listening to your superiors. But ultimately, that's the right thing to do. And if you do follow through on it, you'll be appeasing your superiors, but ultimately you'll be have been responsible for doing a thing you shouldn't have done in the first place. So I'm on, I'm on Burka's side here. You got to take responsibility for your own actions. And if you can't stop a thing, a bad thing from happening, you should either be w willing to take responsibility for it or sacrifice yourself for the greater good, I guess. Yeah. Which is a really scary proposition. Like, should I lose my job over a delete button, right? When ultimately that's the right thing to do and people will probably applaud you for it. But like, that's a scary decision to make. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I want to try and approach this in a way where we don't both just agree and, and there, we lose any nuance here. So that never happens, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that never happens. Here's, I guess, a couple situations that stand out is if you... Find yourself in a scenario where you are having to legitimately ask whether you should do something that you know is morally wrong and damaging to an end user experience versus keeping your job. That seems like a situation where you would want to think long and hard about if that's a job where you would want to stay anyways. Is the asking of them for you to do this enough to turn you off of the company to begin with, right? Because some people that would be a deal breaker. Yeah. And I already know the, the responses to this on Twitter because people are very vocal about this, that anybody who says what I just said comes from a place of privilege, which is hard to deny, but I still think that it holds true. Like there is a moral principle here. I understand that it is harder for people to make that call if they're in a situation where they have a family, they have a mortgage, they have they don't make as much money, it's their first job, their career is on the line. I understand that it is a harder decision, but it still seems like a decision nonetheless that should be made. You know, if you work for a company that doesn't value your opinion on the matter or doesn't value the experience of an end user in such an extreme way, is that an organization that you really want to be spending your valuable time at and putting years of your career into? For me, I think that answer is clear, but I guess that's that's up to each individual. Yeah. And then there's probably a second scenario where a designer might feel like they're the only person in an organization that is fighting for the user and railing against dark patterns. And I would say if you find that you are the only person doing this, that maybe there's also an opportunity for self-reflection where it's like, am I the person that's wrong? Or am I incapable of operating in within the system of 
capitalism or or software as it exists today, where there is friction to doing certain things. I'm trying not to be in defense of the things that Daniel's railing against. And instead, I'm trying to say like there are patterns that designers have found effective to get people to do things within their application. And if you're pushing back on those, but they're kind of industry accepted patterns that feel a little bit in the gray area, you might be alone. You know, does that make sense? No, that that makes that makes sense. Yeah, if that's the situation, like yeah, you have to wonder: Am I crazy, or is everyone else crazy? So here's a good parallel, Marshall, to to tie this back to our good friends on Survivor, the reality television uh, show. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I've listeners of the pod will know that Marshall is a fan of Survivor and has recently converted me into a fan of Survivor. I'm watching the most recent season, and there is a lovely character in in this season named Wendy and sweet girl her tribe as one of the rewards for winning a challenge received three chickens those chickens uh you can do whatever you want with but eat the eggs eat the chickens keep them as pets but for people who are are more or less subsisting on rice and stingrays the thought of cooking a chicken over a fire sounds really really good so wendy's team won the chickens and Wendy immediately became morally opposed to killing animals to the point where she, you know, slight spoiler alert, she lets the chickens go. She frees the chickens so that nobody else can eat the chickens. And the, you know, hypocrisy here, of course, is that she did not feel that way before Survivor. Only in a scenario where she had to kill the chicken herself did she feel that it was the wrong thing to do. Right. Yeah. She wasn't a vegetarian until she was told she had to kill her own food. And then she became a vegetarian, which I can... I'm not sure I would make a different decision. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. She was kind of forced into a corner and pissed everybody off by letting the chickens go. Yeah. But yeah, was was she right? Was she the right one? Or was everybody crazy for, for wanting to eat the chickens? Or was she crazy for letting them go? I don't know. Kind of depends where you land. Yeah, this is a, a value judgment. It seemed like the other people who were starving and wanted to eat the chickens, their point of view was, look, People eat chickens. We understand why some people are for it and against it. You eat chickens. Wendy, you eat chickens. Yeah, yeah. Literally, Wendy also eats chickens. And the argument would be like, this is a part of the world in which we exist. And of all the horrible ways for a chicken to die, this is the least horrible way where we have control of it. We can do it quickly. We will use every part of it. Like There are worse ways for the chicken to die. I guess this is probably going to piss off any people who are listening that really don't like killing chickens. So anyways, to not get too far on on this tangent, it's really about like, are there things in the industry or within software design that are patterns that we need to be comfortable dealing with? I'm not sure where that area lies because it can become a gray area, especially for companies where they need to make money. They live and die by the retention rate of people paying a subscription that can't be bothered to cancel it. Like that's not a business model that I'm a fan of, but it exists. But they're also driven by, you know, user sentiment. If people, everybody ends up hating you because you don't let anybody leave, that's just as bad as letting a bunch of people leave, you know? Yeah. But yeah, to tie it back to your windy analogy, I think it's important to understand that it's hard to know how you will react until you're in the situation. Mm, That's a good point, yeah. Wendy probably would not have freed the chickens, you know, in her daily life, but once confronted with that choice, she made the choice that she thought was ethically correct, right? Yep. And ultimately, that's what you have to do in the situation, because it's not going to always be so cut and dry as like, do we hide the delete button or not? Right. A lot of times it's going to be way more gray and you just have to use your own personal judgment, which is 
what the advice is from this military thing that I was referring to. It's like, you have to use your own judgment and hope that you are correct. Because if you're wrong, you can be court-martialed one way or the other. Right, right. And I think there's probably some hope on the horizon. I've been thinking about, uh, as we've been talking, GDPR is a thing that it exists now for people that live in the European Union, where there are now legal consequences for making certain things like this hard or impossible. Like uh, the argument in GDPR is that you have a right to be forgotten, which means software has to provide accessible and reasonable ways for you to delete the data that they own about you from their servers within a, a reasonable period of time. And now that this has happened in the EU, most companies that are large enough that this would affect have worldwide business, right? Including in the EU. And if you're going to do it for them, you might as well just do it for everybody, right? Yeah. So let's say that this is, you're working at a large organization and you're a designer removed from the top and an order comes down from on high that says, look, we got a lot of people churning. We can't solve the the product problem fast enough, but we need to stop the bleeding. Designer, we need you to work on the cancellation flow to introduce more friction by adding surveys or, or enticing people to discounts. Okay, Marshall, as a hypothetical, let's just put you in this scenario then since, wonderful, you know, let's, let's play the Wendy game. You are a designer at a large corporation. The leadership or uh, your manager or someone from on high comes to you and says, we are bleeding users. We can't build product fast enough to stop the bleeding. So we need to do something in the meantime. Designer, Marshall, we need you to look at our cancellation flow and introduce steps into that cancellation flow that will reduce the rate of churn. We don't care what it is, whether it's adding, you know, discounts for people to resubscribe or pleading them not to go or adding steps into the flow like a survey or making the delete button gray and inaccessible to people on normal screens. Anything it takes to get people to delete their account less often, go do it. What do I do? What do you do? Well, I think the first thing I do is I make the delete button appropriately dangerous looking, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To to avoid red accidental deletions, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You you make a red button, right? That's kind of the universal signal for like, um, if you click on me, something bad will happen, right? Usually something that is unable to be undone. So I, I would make that, I would make the delete button appropriately destructive looking. And then I think I would go on the side of positive reinforcement. So I think the enticement thing is fine because the people who are just kind of on the fence and aren't sure if they want to or or not, they'll be swayed back to keeping their account. If you give them something for free, people like free shit. So, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, (laughs) you know, even if people game it. And then if they still continue to go forward, I, I would continue to use positive reinforcement to educate them and let them know, here are the consequences of this action. Are you sure? And if they said yes, then guess what? It's gone. But I would do I would do those kind of three layers of protection. This is just right off the top of my head. I didn't know you were going to ask me this question. So yeah, I don't yeah know. sure. But yeah, I would I would make the button look sufficiently destructive. I would try to entice them to stay and kind of split the pot with those who are on the fence and those who really actually want to follow through on the action and those who actually do want to follow through on the action. I would let them know exactly what the consequences of that action are. Then I would let them do it. And then I would hit them up with a why, a a form with predefined reasons and an other option for them to type stuff in of why they're leaving Yeah, so that I can learn from it. I think that's probably what I do. Those four steps. What about from a organizational perspective? Is there anything
anything that you do to push back on this process even existing in the first place or the the process where a manager or, or a leader in your organization can say, go make this user journey harder for people? Is that something that you would push back on? Yeah, I would I would definitely have an are you sure step, like a like a speed bump. I think that's okay to put uh, that type of roadblock up just to make sure that people aren't accidentally clicking on it and and they understand. But aside from that, I would never make a flow like that, you know, intentionally more difficult. Okay, well, how about this? Let's make it just a little bit more extreme because I want to talk about how you would push back against the most extreme case. So let's say you have you have a flow today, which is exactly like you've described. It's appropriately has the appropriate amount of friction so that people don't accidentally do it or they don't misinterpret the consequences of doing it. Uh, And then you get the why. So, all right, the flows as you dream and the VP or CEO or manager or whatever says, people are still deleting their account way too much. Remove that flow and add a phone number that they have to call to delete their account. Uh, I mean, man, that would suck. And I would, <laughs> I would tell them that would suck. Yeah, well, that's what I want to hear. Like, how do, you, how, how do you explain why that is a good idea? How would you push back? How do you think about it if it's the CEO versus your manager? I mean, man, yeah, like I can say, I can be all bravado here and say like, yeah, I'd stand up to him. <laughs> I probably would. I hope I would. I hope I would. Yeah, you'd hope you'd be the Wendy of of the tribe. <laughs> right. I actually know I'd eat those fucking chickens. But, um, <laughs> but in this case, yeah, I think, I mean, so I have been in situations that are far less dire than this where where a substandard flow was being rallied for. And I've been like, I've gone through this type of flow before and it sucks every time. Walk yourself through it in your head and imagine that it's a goal that you wanted to achieve and this is the way you wanted to go, you were forced to go about achieving it. How much would that suck? Let's make something better, right? Yeah, I'm not afraid to stand up for, for good user flows, especially when it's just like people at my level or a couple levels higher, and especially when it's fighting for the user. The, the phone number thing sucks. It sucks. And I would, I would let them know as such. But uh, ultimately, if it's still, I mean, it's, I think that's a, a lesser devil than the just you can't delete at all ever. But it would still, gosh, yeah, I've had to do that before calling it fucking sucks. I don't know. Here, here's the thing that I'm thinking about is like, okay, have they, if there's a phone number, that means that the company has probably already spent a ton of money creating or leveraging an existing phone bank team that can answer all these calls. And there's, there's been infrastructure put into place to, to deal with this. Are, is the ball already in motion? Right? Right. If so, then that's a lot harder fight. Cause it's like, you know, we shouldn't do this thing. You've already spent a bunch of money on. <laughs> Right. Which a lot of times I would I would expect that to be enough of a reason for them to ignore me. Would I quit over it over the phone number thing specifically? Probably not. But I would I would hide my face anytime I interacted <laughs> with a user. Any Yeah. Anytime somebody found out where you work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I probably wouldn't. I, I would certainly be less proud of my job. Well, OK, here's something that I would counter with, which is think about the long term cost of making it hard for somebody to cancel their account. And this is something that I've dealt with personally. So I wanted to cancel New York Times at some point just because, you know, you get busy, you don't have time to read it. So you just want to cancel it and maybe you'll come back. But they made it so hard to cancel where you have to take time out of your day, your working hours to call the phone number, talk to a human, go through this whole guilt trip phase, and then you're canceled. That whole process is so laborious that I never, ever want to go through it again. Therefore, I can never justify resubscribing to the New York Times, 
even if it's something that I wanted to do, like I hit their paywall and I've read the maximum number of free articles for the month. I see that paywall and even though I want to do it, I'm like, yeah, I really want to read this article. I won't because I know what's lying at the other end, whether it's a month from now or a year from now, I'm going to have to go through that shit again. And it seems like there's maybe some reasonable way to make that argument. Like, look, there's going to be short term, higher churn, sure. But think about the benefit that that provides to people who want to come back where they come into it knowing that you care about their experience of leaving and joining. It's seamless. It's fast. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm just an edge case in, in the world of people who consume apps like that. But that would be one way to make a case, I guess. Yeah, you raise a really valid point, especially with subscription services of any kind. Like if that were the product I was working on, they said, you know, make the delete flow harder. I would probably propose like a pause flow right? So it's like, we we will pause indefinitely. Yeah, right? You don't have to necessarily delete your account. If you ever want to come back, all your stuff is here. This is kind of what Blizzard does, right? Like if you stop playing a game, like and you come back to playing World of Warcraft 12 years later, your character is still there. But I would still allow the delete thing. But like, it's a nice middle ground for allowing someone to have the option of coming back if they ever want to, but having the knowledge too that in the short term or in the meantime, they're not being charged for anything and, and they, they can get away if they want. There's actually a huge advantage also of doing that, of canceling or, or putting a pause or freeze feature instead of a full deletion where you don't have to necessarily delete the person's contact methods if you freeze their account. So you could still maintain some kind of link to that person, although you get into dangerous territory with unwanted marketing emails but sure yeah that's why you put the unsubscribe button at the bottom if you're, if you're making the financial case to a ceo that could certainly be an argument right it's like look if we make it actually great experience to to pause and resume at intervals that are comfortable for the person we retain that open communication channel with their email address or or a phone number or whatever it is yeah we give them what they want and we don't fully lose them right yeah. like we we don't piss them off we let them achieve the goal they're trying to achieve, which is to stop giving us money every month. But if they ever want to come back, it's super easy for them. And if they ever want to leave again, it's super easy for them. Yeah. And they don't hate us in the meantime. Yeah. My only assumption, which could be wrong, is that unfortunately that probably doesn't work. Like there's a reason that every single gym has this terrible cancellation slash registration fee policy. Like it must just be more financially beneficial for them to make it hard to join and leave gyms. Uh, so that's discouraging. Yeah. No, I mean, that's definitely the dark pattern, yeah. right? It does seem like there is a change in the way companies market themselves where morality and ethics are a fucking virtue or uh, a value proposition of using that product. And for me, if I saw a gym or God forbid, a newspaper that offered that level of flexibility, that would be a reason for me to subscribe. The fact that it would be easy to leave in the future would make me want to sign up for that thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, if I know if I know there's an escape hatch, I'm far more likely to dip my toe in. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe the tides are turning a little bit and this will hopefully become less of a problem over time just because consumer expectations are evolving people are becoming are faced with many more options in the market like there are many more newspapers today than there were 50 years ago people have their choice and it's almost more competitive to to make it easy right yeah knowing that at any point uh, user sentiment driven by tweets um, social tweet yeah like any any sort of online sharing could ramp up to the point where you have a large majority of the internet hating you and, it, and you become a fucking meme that's the worst thing is like if you're known for your terrible customer service, like Comcast. 
Yeah, yeah. Like Comcast. I mean, New York Times, Business Insider, famous for this. Facebook is super well known for that that cancellation flow. I don't know if it still exists, but that was a meme on Twitter. Is like people sharing photos of that guilt trip screen. Not good. All right, so Marshall, how do we how do we wrap this up? I think it comes back to um, you follow orders at your own risk and you disobey orders at your own risk. So that conclusion then for you is it is the responsibility of you, the designer, to make the decision to either follow the order, don't follow the order. But at the end of the day, you take responsibility for your actions within the system that exists, like accepting that engineers also have to make that decision, that PMs also have to make that decision, that it is everybody's responsible, including you, not that you are the exception and the only person responsible. Correct. Yes. Okay. That's, I think we, I think we both come down there. Okay. Solved it. Solved another internet problem, Brian. Maybe. Let us know what you thought, (laughs) dear listener. so easy. What did we miss? I up an article on the internet and it was done. Yeah. What... (laughs) (laughs) what perspectives are we missing? Like it's obviously nuanced, but I think at some point you got to say one thing is right and one thing is wrong here. So I'm curious what perspective we've perspectives we could have missed that would have changed our decision. So let us know, tweet at us, design details FM on Twitter. Let us know. Or if you want that to be private, send us DMS. We'll read those and we can do some follow-up next week. If we learn more about the problem. Yeah. Cool. Marshall, let's get into some cool things. All right. Hit me, Brian. So this week, my cool thing is a chain of, people and products. So I will start with a person named Cole Bemis, who is a developer and currently a design systems intern at GitHub. And Cole became known, or I became aware of Cole through a project that he created called Feather Icons at feathericons.com which are simply beautiful open source icons. And I love the, uh, the icon set. They're very nice. And the experience of implementing them is great. He's made it very easy to get the SVG code so that you can drop it right into your application. And I've been using them in a lot of side projects. They're very pretty, simple, and, and the set has an appropriate breadth of icon types. So Cole created Feather Icons, which would be a cool thing on its own, but another person came along and sort of remixed and extended what Cole had done with Feather. And this person is named Gaddafi Rusli, or Rusli, Gaddafi Rusli. We'll have links to Gaddafi's Twitter profile in the show notes, of course. Hope I'm pronouncing it close enough. But Gaddafi is, from what I can gather, a prolific side project creator. And one of his side projects is called IconSVG.xyz which is an extension of the feather icons where you can select an icon in the left half of your screen. And on the right side, you have a properties panel where you can adjust the size, the stroke width, the stroke color, the stroke ends and joins, whether they're they're curved or squared. And then there is a bunch of controls to quickly copy the SVG code, JSX code if you're using React, download the code, uh, the icon, or, or one click to copy the code itself. So it's an interactive editor to customize any one of the given feather icons to your taste and then really handy controls to get it into a format where you can use it in your project or in your React code. So yeah, that's my chain of things. Cole made feather. Feather was remixed by Gaddafi into iconsvg.xyz. This is really cool. I'm, I'm clicking around on it. So I, I'm going to start using this for the side project because up until now, I, I have the whole feather icon set in Figma. And I always just open that Figma file, take the icon I want, resize it, do the stroke width however I want it, and then I export that SVG. This will make that like 10 times faster. So Wow. Yeah. This is cool, man. Uh, I actually talked to, to Cole the other day. 
And my understanding is that this is a little bit outdated. I think there have been some updates to feather icons that haven't been put into iconsvg.xyz, but hopefully they can sort of catch up. But in the meantime, it's still a pretty solid set. Yeah, new icons, tweaks to old ones. Cool, though. Good thing, Brian. Yeah, how about that? Ready for my cool thing? Hit me. So I decided to share a little life pro tip for you. <laughs> life hacks with Marshall. Actually, this is more like a tech pro tip. I have an Apple TV and I love my Apple TV. I even like the the Siri remote, the, the physical remote. We use it constantly. It's functionally outstanding. Usably, it is very, very not great. <laughs> uh-huh. So my problems with it are thus... <laughs> and so begins my enumeration of the problems. <laughs> yes, allow me to enumerate. So it's designed beautifully, which means like many Apple things, it's perfectly symmetrical, top to bottom, left to right. And that's great for visuals, but not so great when you're trying to find it in the dark and you can't tell which side is up. They've tried to alleviate this a little bit by putting a little raised ring around the menu button, but that doesn't help a whole lot. The, the trackpad is matte finish instead of glossy finish, but still, in the dark, it's impossible to tell which way is which, and if you get it wrong, it's bad news. So Bad news, you might accidentally pause when you meant to quit. <laughs> or or worse, scrub, you know, like uh, scrub yes. to a different part of the, and then not be able to get back to where you were. So that's a problem. It's also really hard to pick up. It's this little flat piece of metal and plastic, and it's it's like almost impossible to get your hands under. It's like really slick. It's not, it's not easy to hold on to. What's another thing? Oh, I lose it all the time because it's so small and skinny. It'll like slip between the couch cushions or like fall under the couch and I can never find it. So these are my problems. How did I solve these, Brian? Well, let me tell you. Uh, go so, on. Are you familiar with Tile, the little um, Bluetooth uh, location tracking thingy? Yeah, I am. Yeah. So I took a Tile, one of the old white ones. We had a bunch of them laying around. I took a Tile and I attached it with little 3M stretchy sticky strips. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. I stuck it to the back of that. And the Tile is like the perfect size. It's almost the exact same width as and, and same corner round, rounding radius as the uh, as the Apple remote. So I put the tile at the bottom of the remote, remote, like where your hand grabs it. And then in order to keep it from like toppling, right, when you set it down on a flat surface and in order to keep it from like angling down, I found two little drawer bumpers, little plastic, little like rubber bumpers that keep your drawers from slamming. I found a couple of those that I had laying around because I have an entire box full of this shit. Um, and <laughs> I found two that were like the exact same height as the tile plus the width of the little sticky strips. And so I put two of those on on either of the top two corners on the back. Okay. So from the front, from the you know from the top, the face of the remote, it looks exactly the same. But the back is very ugly now because I have these these bumpers and this tile thing attached to it. But you have Frankensteined this piece of Apple hardware. Yes. <laughs> yes, and it's ugly, but it's usable now. So as a result of these changes, let's go through my my problems. Uh, it's hard to tell which way is up. Well, it's no longer hard to tell which way is up because when I grab it, I can see which I can feel which side the tile is on, and that's the side that goes down. And it's hard to pick up. Well, because it's a little flat piece of metal. Well, now it's not because it has a, a little gap where I can reach between the tile and the little bumpers, and it's kind of raised off of whatever surface I've placed it on. So it's a lot easier to pick up. And because of those things I've put on the back, it no longer slips down between the couch cushions because it's a little bit thicker. 
and and it doesn't slide around as much because it's got those rubber bumpers on the back, so uh, it's not just smooth metal. And if I do lose it, if it does fall down, I have the tile on it, which I can just hit a button on my phone, and it'll play a little tune, and I can find it immediately. Right. And then, yeah, is that everything? Yeah, those, those are the four points. Hard to pick up, hard to tell which way is up, easy to lose, and hard to find. Yeah, and this solves all of those things. So... If you have a couple little drawer bumpers and a tile and either some tape or whatever, uh, some way to affix those things to the back of your Apple device, I would highly recommend this this little uh, life hack. Cool thing. Well, maybe that will be something that gets fixed. I could imagine a find my app feature for the Apple TV remote and then the introduction of like new tactile ways to identify direction yeah and wwdc apple announced that they combined you referenced the find my app they combined find my friends and find my phone into one app and kind of the way they did this with being able to find your devices like your macbook or your phone it sends out a low energy bluetooth signal all the time and you can find it because it talks to other Apple devices that are also receiving those uh, and sending them up to the cloud. So if you lose your thing, you can find it from from the web of devices that are out there. You can you can pinpoint the location. And there were rumors that Apple was going to release some sort of tile competitor. And as they were talking through all this stuff, I'm like, they've set up the entire network. They've they've done all of the necessary work to introduce their own tile thing. It's coming, but then it never came. They never announced it, which makes me think that sometime in the future they're going to because they've done Mm. all of the work necessary except for create the little tile product itself. Interesting. Do you agree with me? Are you you in that same mind frame? It seems like everything, it should not be a separate piece of hardware that you have to affix to devices. No, it would be be a separate piece of hardware that you would put on your keys and now you have an Apple tracker instead of instead of a separate tile app and it works with the find my app is what i'm saying yeah 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 um i guess yeah we'll see we'll see if uh, history proves me correct we'll find out in the yeah future. We'll, we'll see hopefully in the next decade yeah at some point between now and the heat death of the universe we'll find out whether or not <laughs> apple did what i think they're gonna yeah, do yeah yeah all right well cool there's a little life hack and uh some icons for you yeah some easily implementable icons with great functionality and optionality brian there you go All right, everybody. That was episode 302. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought on Twitter, Design Details FM. Of course, let us know what we missed in the whole conversation about designing deletion flows. Uh, Let us know how we could have made a better argument or if there are things we did not consider that would have changed our minds. Tweet at us, DM us. We love reading those. If you have other questions or ideas for the show, of course, tweet us, DM us. We love to to keep those questions coming as well. Of course, thank you to Sarah and Drew, our editors, masters, producers who make the show possible and make us sound way smarter than we are. Thank you, Sarah and Drew, for another week. Thanks, Sarah and Drew. We're, We're on our way into the 300s. And if you need more podcasts between now and next Wednesday, hit up spec.fm. We've got podcasts for designers and developers just like you, including the Layout Podcast hosted by Rafa and Kevin where they also discuss what's happening in the day-to-day design industry, talk about existential questions, review apps, and talk about WWDC in way more depth than I could ever imagine. Uh, Lots of good stuff over there on layout and uh, everything else for developers on spec.fm. Cool. That's it. Guess we'll see you next week. Yeah, buddy. Good chat. Thanks for uh, putting me through the ringer on that one. I'm just <laughs> glad we uh, snuck a survivor. We're going to be able to start sneaking more survivor <laughs> like pop culture references into future episodes. So that's exciting for me. Remember when I was talking about using your powerful power for good or evil? I've used it for evil. <laughs> <laughs>
everyone will be watching Survivor with us next season. <laughs> season <laughs> thirty nine. At least you're gonna have to listen to it now. <laughs> yeah, let's let's start gauging demand for uh, Marshall Bryan fan cast of Survivor, <laughs> starting with season thirty nine. Right. Sounds like my worst nightmare, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fun, actually. I know, I know. No one would listen. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Until next week, Marshall. Until next week. Bye. We went way over on time, too. I know. Shit. <laughs> we just can't control ourselves, man. One fifteen. Sorry, Drew. Sorry, sorry Sarah. Drew. Actually, Sarah doesn't care. She just does the master. It doesn't matter how long it is. <laughs> well, also, sorry, Sarah, because it does take more time regardless. Uh, true. Yeah, it takes longer to bounce. Sorry. We're just so knowledgeable. We have to <laughs> share our knowledge. It takes time to be this smart. That's one way to say it. <laughs> uh. Uh.